Hey everyone, Jason here. I'm excited to share my first interview of 2023 with fintech legend and current CEO of Lending Club, Scott Sanborn. This episode of Fintech Business Weekly Podcast is brought to you by TripActions. TripActions is the end-to-end travel expense and corporate card solution. That's right, TripActions goes way beyond being a global travel agency by offering full-stack corporate card issuing, payments, expense management, and spend reporting. Clients that have used TripActions to simplify their travel and expense management include Lyft, Heineken, Okta, Toast, and many others. Learn more today at TripActions.com. Without further ado, here's the show. Welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast. I'm here today with Scott Sanborn, CEO of Lending Club. I'd be quite surprised if anyone listening today was not familiar uh, with Lending Club. It's probably one of the most well-known companies from the first wave of fintech, uh, having been around and founded uh, in 2006. A lot has happened in fintech and at Lending Club specifically since then, including the sunsetting of its retail investor platform, which, full disclosure, I used, uh, and the transition to being a bank through its acquisition of Radius Bank. Uh, I think you get the idea. We're going to have plenty to talk about. Scott, welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm going to assume that most listeners are generally familiar with Lending Club uh, and get right to the tough questions, specifically the decision to become a bank and end that support for retail investors like me. Can you tell me a little bit about the company uh, and how the company arrived at that strategic decision? Yeah, of course. Uh, and good morning, and, th- and thanks for having me, Jason. So uh, it it was a obviously a very very meaningful decision that was not taken lightly. However, when you kind of pull together all of the supporting arguments, it it, it actually was somewhat of a of a no brainer. You know, the company had been around. Founded as you you pointed out, first loan was back in two thousand seven. The basic idea was. Hey, you know, retail banking was the last frontier to be disrupted by technology. And, you know, lending is a data problem and a tech company should be able to solve that. And the customer experience at that time was pretty terrible. There was a lot of print out a PDF and bring it into our bank branch uh, if you'd like to get a loan. And so, you know, we felt we could transform that. uh, And at the time we felt, hey, we didn't need to be a bank. We would be effectively a marketplace where we would match investors uh, to the risk and and, uh, we would take a fee in the middle. The first two of those things were right. We were able to make, you know, credit more affordable, make it more accessible. We were able to deliver an outstanding and pretty transformational experience that drove, you know, a lot of customer satisfaction. The part about not being a bank uh, turns out, you know, that wasn't right. Uh, and you know, there, if you just step back and say, well, why not? There's there's the financial reasons, uh, which are very compelling. Uh, we were paying, let's call it between thirty and forty million dollars a year to partner banks to issue loans for us underneath mm-hmm. their their charter. We were also paying banks to warehouse loans for us, right? We were sitting on a billion dollars worth of warehouse lines. So call that another, you know, $40 million in expense that really went away as part of becoming a bank. So recapture those expenses. Um, and then we also add a new revenue stream, which is as opposed to selling 100% of the loans through the marketplace, we 
now with the charter hold about 25% of the loans. And, you know, that's, we're doing a lot of the work here, right? We're, mar- we're identifying the customer, we are underwriting them, we're servicing them. So actually the incremental amount of work to gather deposits and hold them on the balance sheet is pretty small. So we picked up a whole new revenue stream. So that's kind of the financial argument, less expenses, higher revenue, mm-hmm. pretty clear. I call it, there, there's a resiliency piece um, next to the financial piece, which is, you know, it's not if there's an impact to the capital markets and capital markets get constrained, it's when. And so having access to deposits, stable deposits to be able to weather any kind of temporary shutdown or constriction or dislocation of the capital markets is really critical. Um, and then the other piece of resiliency is, is the clarity of the regulatory framework. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the issuing bank model is at various times under varying degrees of assault at both the national and the state level. Uh, and so, you know, these challenges, which I'm sure you are familiar with and some of your readers will be familiar with, of, of valid when made and mm-hmm. true lender, right? You know, it's an existential question. So just knowing uh, you know, you have a regulatory framework that, you know, stands the test of time. You actually know who your regulator is and can talk to them about your innovation roadmap, as opposed to trying to interpret 50 state rules, convince a partner bank and, and hope for the best. We actually felt like would be clarifying. So that's that's the resiliency piece. And the, and the last is the strategic piece, which is, you know, vertically integrated branchless digital bank. Um, we can just do more for our customers. We can move beyond lending and go into spending and savings. Mm-hmm. Um, and by capturing more value, we can return more value to the customer. And that's that's really what we're about is kind of finding the structural inefficiencies in banking and uh, some of the inherently structurally non-customer friendly ways of doing business that evolved over the last century or so um and and giving it back to the customer so by you know actually controlling that full stack and capturing all that income we just have more we can give back to the customer but that i mean you you asked one other question you asked was on the retail notes i'd say that was one of the harder decisions you know many hard decisions over the last several years that was actually one of the harder ones um very close to the brand uh and to all of our hearts but it just um, in the banking context doesn't make sense without going into accounting weeds for uh, reasons that our controller would want to could, could explain to you you know that the security we issue shows up as debt on our balance sheet and we would have to hold capital against that debt even though we have no risk uh, right the risk is the end security holder the investor and even though we're not earning any ongoing income would have to hold capital so as, as you know, as a bank, you know, ultimately, we're going to be judged on our return on capital, return on equity. And um, so it just didn't make financial sense to continue that program. It also, you know, at the scale we were operating at was not not scalable. So we what we did when we wound down that program is we created what we call the founders account, where anyone who was interested as their loans paid down, we gave them the ability to put it into a high yield savings account and uh, uh, and committed that we would always pay those loan or sorry those uh, savers the highest rate we had available in the market, and that 
goes to one of the practices in banking, which is, you know, you if you look out there on the, the rate tables at Bankrate and NerdWallet, you'll see all these bank names you don't recognize. And those are banks that you do know and recognize creating fake brands to avoid paying their loyal customers a high savings rate. So, you know, that's part of our promise is to not do that. I mean, it, it is interesting that we're now, you know, really for the first time in my adult life, or at least the first time in my career in uh, banking and financial services, in an environment where the interest rate on, you know, savings, certificate deposit, etc., you know, actually seems to finally matter and have the potential to be a, a differentiator, um, which is very uh, interesting turn of events that I probably wouldn't have expected, you know, 18 months, 24 months ago. Um, some of the context you just provided is quite honestly, I had not thought about, right? So, I mean, when when I thought about Lending Club's transition um, as sort of a, whatever, armchair analyst, you know, I primarily thought about it through that capital markets lens, which if memory serves, you know, by the time uh, you went through that transition, you know, retail investors accounted for something around 5% of loans funded on the platform. So, you know, as an external observer, it was like, oh, okay, you know, the amount of capital coming from retail is very small, but essentially it's an entire, you know, product with presumably a product management team, an engineering team, you know, marketing to acquire investors, et cetera. Also, honestly, had no idea about the accounting implications of holding those securities um, on your books as a bank and, and the drag that would provide on um, return on equity, return on capital calculation. So definitely uh, makes sense why you would, you know, choose to sunset that product uh, as far as you know, being publicly traded, accountable to your shareholders, uh, et cetera. Um, I mean, through the company's history, you know, you've navigated a lot of questions, you know, complicated regulatory questions that seem to keep coming up, right? I mean, the obvious one around buying a bank, becoming a bank, you know, we've sort of discussed, but also in the earlier days, um, the need to uh, comply with securities regulation, right? So for for people who may not be familiar, um, you know, Lending Club and, you know, at the time, com- you know, key competitor Prosper, you know, the loans that were being issued are securitized, sliced into tranches. I think I was investing $25 at a time and offered as securities. But I believe, and in, in Scott, keep me honest here, you know, when you first launched, those were, not being structured or registered as securities with the SEC and, and needed to sort of pause and navigate that uh, piece of regulatory apparatus. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear some of your, uh, I don't know, advice, I guess, you know, to, to companies that are in the market now, you know, and certainly we've seen a whole lot of drama, you know, last year, 2022 in crypto markets, uh, you know, across across the board, Securities regulation, uh, liquidity problems, outright fraud, it's really run the gamut. But I mean, Lending Club has been through a lot of these questions, um, perhaps at a slightly lower intensity level than what we've seen in crypto. But we're seeing some of it in, in um, you know, the more traditional finance fintech space as well, as far as sort of novel product formulations and how 
how well those are being explained to end consumers. Do they really understand what they're buying or investing in, et cetera? You know, I'm curious if you have any advice to companies that may be navigating, you know, some of these challenges today based on your own experience. Yeah, it's uh it's a great question. There's so much to talk about here. And you know, taking a big step back, right? We've had this extended period of abundant supply of capital, uh rewarding growth and high growth opportunities and you know, a whole culture in in the valley and and elsewhere, but you know, emanating from the valley around you know, driving uh, very, very large outcomes in as short a period as possible. And, you know, the interesting thing is you see there are certain categories where, you know, risk management as, you know, it needs needs to be factored in together with that growth, whether it's, you know, healthcare, uh, we obviously have some big examples there or in financial services. And, you know, there are places where companies were awarded for, look, the, the rules weren't written to contemplate what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We're just going to go for it anyway. And we'll apologize later. Uh, and, you know, we'll let the regulations settle around us. And, you know, that can work. Uh, I don't know, like Uber. or mm-hmm. uh, And there are places where that approach doesn't work, right? Because you're dealing with people's health or you're dealing with people's money like financial services and you know we've always had here this deliberate strategic intent you can see it on our board you can see it on our executive team you can see it you know at all levels of the company of combining people who are real change agents who question how things are done and why things are done that way and why don't we do them differently with people who know how things are done today and why they're done that way Mm-hmm. And there's this healthy friction that comes with having people who understand uh, both sides of that coin and are working together to get to an outcome. And um, if you don't have that, right, ignorance is not an excuse for violating the law. And if you don't have people who understand like what your obligations are and why they are that, then it, you're not you're not knowingly taking risk, right? Which is okay. Uh, because then you can manage that risk. So there's so much of that out in the space. And obviously, uh, crypto is a very visible example. I think Bass is a very visible example of that. Where I don't think people fully understand their obligations. They don't fully understand the risks they're taking and therefore are not able to appropriately manage them. And, you know, in a world where the cultural zeitgeist and the regulatory view was biased towards tech is on balance good, uh, versus where we are today, which I think is tech is on balance bad. You combine those two things, and I think there are some, you know, there are more negative outcomes to come on that front. And you know, as you mentioned, for us, when uh, you know we knew we were doing something different with fractional loans, and um, we basically said, look, if if the view is these are a security, okay, we'll register them as a security, and we we went slow to go fast. Right. We slowed down. We continued issuing loans, but we stopped selling them to retail so we could get that process done. And we got it done and we took off. And others who fought that process ended up um, falling behind. Right. Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, fighting the regulators, you you 
you don't win. Um, so, um, you know, understanding the perspective, embracing it and figuring out how to adapt to it. And, you know, look, there's lots of stories, I think, still to be written about what the, you know, how, how that's different for different categories and different verticals and where, you know, pushing the limits makes sense. But uh, I'd say, broadly speaking, financial services isn't one of those places. That's interesting. I mean, one of one of the themes, and you mentioned Bass, so I'm going to pull on that thread a little bit. Um, I mean, I think one of the themes in fintech, you know, particularly with the rise of you know, partner banking and these, I use the term middleware platforms, um, has been the sort of like disaggregation of the banking value chain. And it's not necessarily new to to the industry, right? I mean, I'm caveat, like not an expert on the mortgage space, um, but from, you know, Applying for a mortgage through origination, servicing, and repayment, you know, my understanding is that that is sort of a highly uh, fractionalized or verticalized process where you're going to have sort of specialty companies and uh, capital providers that are sort of focused on various steps in this journey. And we seem to be experiencing or have experienced, I suppose, over the course of the last two, three, four, five years, some version of this, or or exper- I should say experimentation with some versions of this in other consumer products, right? So I mean, actually Lending Club, uh, where, where the company began is a great example. You know, you mentioned uh, needing to have banks to actually write the loans uh, as, you know, charter holder and enjoying the privileges that banks have as far as uh, interest rate exportation, et cetera the need for warehouse facilities, uh, SEC registration, and so on. You know, it, it seems like in some of these product categories, so perhaps in lending, you know, perhaps deposit products, uh, you know, debit, uh, checking account products, it, it's a little unclear to me from where we are today if the increase in complexity uh, is being rewarded with sort of a, uh, with a return on investment, I guess, to put it bluntly, right? I mean, if you look at the neobanking space, uh, specifically non-licensed neobanks, so your sort of Chime, Current, et cetera, that have partner banks, um, you know, it's not abundantly clear if that economic model is going to be sustainable. You look at companies in that non-bank lending space, which, which of course has been, you know, the consumer sector, there have always been non-bank lenders, Although they've historically typically focused on subprime and near prime companies like Springleaf and OneMain and you know the the payday lending world that unfortunately I'm very familiar with. Um, so I mean, I guess to try to bring that around and ask you an actual question, I'm I'm curious to hear some of your perspective, um, you know, both from your own experience at Lending Club and, and what you see happening in the banking ecosystem, you know. Has Bass been a net positive for end consumers? So that that person using a neobank for community banks that are pursuing revenue diversification, you know, for the fintechs that are that are building these models. Like are are there players that are winning here, or have we introduced more complexity and not necessarily 
solved problems for different participants in the ecosystem. Uh, and maybe I know that, you know, with the acquisition of Radius, there may be some, some you know, lessons or experience you can draw on from, from that as well. Yeah, so a lot, a lot to unpack there as well. I guess starting with close to home on the lending side, you're right. I mean, there have been specialty finance companies around forever who are non-banks who make credit available generally to higher risk segments. Why to higher risk segments? Because their cost of capital is higher, and that's the only way they can make money mm-hmm. lending. What came along, I think, with uh, the advent of marketplace lending, which we really were one of the pioneers of, was this ability to um, use a marketplace to, uh, you know, as opposed to, say, a warehouse line and, you know, ongoing securitization, you know, deals, use a marketplace to drive down the cost of capital, right? That's what marketplaces do. They, they find the lowest cost willing to meet the risk and able to do it across the spectrum, right? By pulling together banks plus asset managers, plus dedicated funds to the, to the space and insurance money and credit unions, pulling all of those together, you're basically able to drive down the cost of credit um, in a, you know, using APIs for people to transact, make that very efficient. The benefit to the, the um, originator in our case is we just say yes to more people and they say yes back to us because our offering is better than they can get elsewhere, right? You know, because if you're an 800 FICO, it's a credit union supplying that. If you're a, you know, 750 FICO, that's a community bank. If you're a 600 FICO, it's an asset manager. So that that worked in, and I think had a very tangible benefit to the customer. And then the role of the issuing bank in that, which you pointed out, is you know, your choice to be a lender is either register in all 50 states for multiple licenses mm-hmm. in each state, servicing, originations, and then tailoring your product to those state-specific rules, which are far from uniform. And, you know, I mean, there are states where you can't make uh, an installment loan of over 16%. Uh, mm-hmm. you, can't, uh, you can't make a loan of over 12%. If it's $5,000 or less, there's all these rules that are different by state. So it'd be very hard in an you know online world where you have a national footprint to to do that um, in unsecured lending. So the issuing bank allows you to have one product you know, based on the rules of the state in which your issuing bank resides and export that to all 50 states. It's just way more efficient. Um, the other thing it does when you're starting out is it provides a level of compliance oversight and regulatory oversight that you're not going to get in a 35-person startup based in mm-hmm. you know, Redwood City or Mountain View, right? You've got somebody who's looking at your website copy, your, your emails, your, your, uh, your call center scripts, and making sure they are complying with uh, all of the regulations. So there's real value there uh, for the issuer and the provider from partnering with a bank. In our case, we just outgrew that, right? I mean, we ended up, by the time we bought a bank, we had more people in our compliance department than our partner banks did. Um, So we just kind of outgrew that structure, but it made sense early on. You know, the same thing is theoretically true in BAS, uh, the role that the partner bank can play. The distinction I would make, and, you know, these are stories that you've broken, um, is that, I'd say on the lending side, the banks who were doing this were generally, this is what they did, right? They realized Mm -hmm. their function was, 
we are a compliance oversight arm. Our goal is to have SLAs around how quickly we can review material and provide the right oversight, model governance and all the rest. That's why we exist. You know, what I'd observe in Bass is community banks are, are struggling, right? They don't have the technology budgets, they don't have the technology teams, they, uh, they are, you know, trying to sort of eke out um, an existence with small footprints and being subscale. And some of them are moving into Bass, um, you know, without potentially the understanding of the full breadth of requirements that, you know, they need to fulfill and, and you know, uh, understanding all of the technology providers they're working with. That, so I, I, I do think that is a little bit uh, of the rub we're seeing now. In terms of your question on, you know, value to the consumer versus, uh, let's call it value to the equity investor. I mean, mm -hmm. clearly, you look at somebody like Chime and they have unlocked something meaningful in terms of a customer benefit and feature set that they were lacking from their banks, right? Banks in general make <laughs> make money off of uh, a, a couple different groups of people uh, in different ways. If you're wealthy, they are managing your investments. If you're middle income, they're lending to you. Uh, if you're low income, they've been, you know, feeing you to death uh, mm -hmm. because they can't make money off your deposits and they can't lend to you. And, I think Chime unlocked that. Um, so clearly, you don't get that kind of scale without unlocking a customer benefit. As for the viability of the business model, I, you know, I'll leave leave that to others to judge. I don't know enough about the financials. I will I will say the explosion of neobanks. It's a, you know I was talking to news a while ago. I said it reminds me of the the dating sites early on. You know, you went from <laughs> you know kind of one dating site to rule them all to you know, whatever, farmers uh, or, or, you know, all kinds of different views. And that seems to be what's happening in neobanks and whether that kind of affinity is what ends up driving real differentiated, you know, business models. Uh, I think that, that book hasn't been written. Hmm. Well, and this could play out in ways that we don't, uh, you know, can't yet anticipate, right? If there's some sort of increase, uh, which, you know, seems to be likely to happen in, regulatory scrutiny of the partner banks that are working with these end fintechs, you know, that has the potential to change the bank's risk ap appetite of, you know, okay, how much revenue am I getting from this neobank for pet owners, um, which I'm a pet owner, but I, I don't quite see the appeal of like a, you know, a dedicated debit card for uh, the chew toys and, and vet visits, you know, how much as a bank, how much revenue am I generating Versus how much risk am I incurring from supporting 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 fintech programs? And I think, you know, the last 18 months, two years, we've seen sort of the gold rush of partner banking. And now that bill, you know, may be coming due as regulatory scrutiny, you know, clearly has been stepped up. And I believe, you know, that's going to continue to be the case this year. The risk calculus you know, might change. Um, and that, that you know, may result in uh, just saying no to programs that banks maybe would have said yes to before. And it may also flow down to the fintechs themselves in the form of expectations of, um, you know, more critical of what their business model is and the viability there, 
uh, higher expectations of what their compliance management system, staffing, you know, compliance staffing and technology infrastructure look like as far as their ability to manage those risks appropriately on behalf of the bank. So I'm I'm thinking that like you know what what got funded and was viable last year might end up looking different as the regulatory and compliance environment changes. Um, I think actually speaking of changing, (laughs) speaking of changing environments, you know, the economy is also in a much different position going into 2023 than it was, you know, last year or when we were sort of in the, the depths of COVID, um, you know, as far as, you know, everyone obviously is aware of inflation and interest rates, um, you know, normalization on delinquencies and charge-offs. You know, we've been in a very benign credit environment, again, actually basically for the entirety of my career in financial services, you know, post-2008 and, and the very slow recovery from that. You know, and since then, you know, it's been, you know, low inflation, low interest rates, decent employment, you know, decent credit quality. Um, you know, from where... Lending club sits, you know, particularly as a consumer lender. Um, you know, how is the current environment shaping your strategy, your execution, you know, your appetite for risk, your approach to risk management? I mean, what what does this what does this year have in store for you? Yeah, you know, I I think you're right. You made this comment earlier that hey, you're you're observing an environment that you haven't seen before in your adult life, I'd, I'd add that that's true for most people. And it's also true at the banks, right? They, we haven't, the the environment in which banks need to attract and retain deposits uh, when rates are accelerating like this, you know, that muscle is atrophied. Um, and, and, you know, this era of abundant capital, uh, aggressively seeking yield, is actually a historical anomaly. And I, I think a mistake people would make would be, oh, we just have to get through this period and then on the other side is gonna go back to the way it was. I think, I, I'm not certain that that's true, um, mm-hmm. right? And that we're just entering a, a different era uh, that is gonna have different dynamics. In terms of our strategy, um, you know, we, we have the benefit of being around a while. Right, 15 years of loans, 80 billion in loans. We've been through an up rate cycle before, not not as significant as this one, but we've been through it before. And so we had a sense for what to expect. And we've been talking about it for over a year now, not what to expect in terms of the pace and scale of the Fed's increases, but rather what would the implications be for our business and how do we need to position ourselves? So you know, you go back to our, our last year, this time last year, when we were announcing, I think, Q3 earnings uh, last year, we said, hey, we don't, we're seeing a lot of change on the come. Uh, government stimulus running off, um, people, you know, pent up demand from the pandemic being unleashed, uh, cost of living starting to go up we're on balance cautious and we are going to be pulling back, uh, especially to lower income, higher risk consumers. At that time, we said, you know, 
we're typically issuing 15 to 20% of our loans in this 600 to 660 FICO range. We said we were going to pull that down to the bottom end of that historical range. The other thing uh, we did was, you know, we really repositioned the marketplace part of our business to be with investors. We were at record high demand for loans, you know, waiting list, what we call oversubscribed, people <laughs> wanting to buy the loans, um, record high pricing. Um, and we did not capitalize on that. In fact, we, our strategy was let's work with our foundational partners. Let's get them the, rather than under allocating, making everyone equally unhappy uh, <laughs> and driving up our price and driving in period earnings. We said, okay, we believe what's going to happen is as rates go up, um, the, you know, for some investors, their cost of capital moves based on the forward curve. So it moves based on expectations. So as expectations go up, their cost of capital goes up. That's instant. Our ability to pass rate increases onto the borrower is a multi-step process. The Fed has to actually move. Once they actually move, credit cards move about two billing cycles later, and then we can move after that. So you have investors' cost of capital based on expectations, which is where's the Fed going to be You know, right now, let's say in March or April. We're, we can only move based on what the Fed has done lagged by three months. So that mm -hmm. creates a relative value squeeze. Um, and what we saw was banks were going to be more resilient because their cost of capital is based on deposits and deposit betas, as you know, are, are slower to react. Whereas, you know, let's call it capital markets funded investors move instantly. So we stopped doing capital markets transactions. We, you know, uh, really moved away from investors who required that for their funding and really over positioned ourselves towards banks and dedicated funds that we thought would be more resilient. Um, and also, you know, told the markets that we expected a tale of two halves. The first half would be lots of tailwind and momentum and the back half, we weren't sure. It depends on where the Fed goes. So we felt like we, and, and we really leaned into the upper credit quality. So we really pushed into the higher end of prime um, with our with the mix of our overall issuance. So that, you know, turned out to be sound. Like I said, I we can't sit here and claim that we anticipated all that transpired over the last 12 months, but I'd say we were directionally, we were directionally right. Um, and now as we're thinking about next year, you know, what, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're on balance, cautious on credit, um, you know, right now in, Certainly inflation, you know, we, we always talk about um, unemployment as the driver of credit mm -hmm. losses. And historically, if you look over you know, the last 50 years, that's true. That's because there aren't that many periods of inflation for you to, to look at. Uh, and so inflation, you know, unemployment, when it materializes, it affects whatever percent of the population it's increased by. So if you think we're going to go from 3.7 to 4.7, yeah, it's 1%. Uh, whereas inflation, it affects everybody, and it especially mm -hmm. affects everybody at the lower end of income. And while the more recent signs have been somewhat encouraging, you're still talking about mid to high single digits on top of mid to high single digits last year. So compound inflation rate that is really taking a bite. And, you know, we'll expect that as that eases to be replaced with pressure on unemployment. So 
all that has us somewhat cautious on, on credit. We've been repositioning our balance sheet to the high end of prime. Um, and, and we have been, you know, kind of curtailing our overall appetite to make sure our investors get uh, the yields they need in this higher rate environment. Um, and we're leaning, you know, more into the bank. The, the thing about the marketplace is it is a very powerful accelerant. When times are good, uh, you can say yes to a broad range of people and you get the benefit of recognizing in period income. You know, we issue a loan, mm -hmm. we sell it, we recognize the origination fee. Yay, it's excellent. We make three times as much money for loans we hold on the balance sheet, but the way the accounting plays out is a little different, which is we do not recognize the fee that we actually collected. We recognize that over the life of the loan in the form mm -hmm. of interest income, and we take the present value of the lifetime of loan losses. Um, and so we take a big charge up front. We don't recognize the revenue up front. It's so it's less attractive in period. And when and times are good, we you know the marketplace offsets that. Um, but when you know there's pressure on the marketplace, which we expect to continue until the Fed pauses, ideally, or at least slows down, we're you know we're pushing more and, and benefiting more from the marketplace. And you saw that last quarter, um, where you know about half of our revenue was coming off our balance sheet, and you know we took you know almost a third of the loans we issued on our balance sheet versus the twenty to twenty five percent we normally take. Well, and, and I mean, that is the benefit of having the charter holding the, the deposits that, that's now playing out for you and for Lending Club, right? The ability to have flexibility in whether you hold in balance sheet, whether you, you know, sell to some other participant. So, I mean, I think that, that that'll be interesting to see how, you know, how that story unfolds for Lending Club, for other fintechs that have chosen to become banks or acquire banks versus the one, you know, the ones that haven't. So sort of like the, the ones that remain non-bank lenders, more more dependent or completely dependent on, on capital markets. I have one more question, which hopefully we have time for. It sounds like this may be a little less relevant given the segment of customers Lending Club has focused on and, and continues to focus on. Um, but I'm curious to hear your opinion anyway. You know, something that I have been moderately encouraged to see in the last couple of years is, you know, increasing, uh, I guess, innovation as, as tired as that word is in approaches to underwriting uh, non-prime consumers, right? So sort of broadly, you know, you, have, you hear people talk about alternative data, which can include a lot of things. Uh, typically, I think cash flow based underwriting um, generally is, is the most predictive or, or the most valuable piece of that versus, you know, subscription data on did I pay my Netflix on time or, you know, rent payments, et cetera. Uh, but also other, I would say like sort of novel formulations like earned wage access and payroll linked lending. And I mean, even if, you know, these technologies are not necessarily applicable in the sense like lending club might not use them, potentially your customers, your borrowers, might be so there can be sort of second order impacts. I'm not even going to go on my my BNPL tirade, but mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm sure you're certainly uh, aware of of that and, and the potential impacts of like you know what is this? I think of it as almost like an off balance sheet debt, right? Since it doesn't show up on the bureaus 
yet. Right. Although although all three have, have committed to figuring out some way to do that at some point. <laughs> They've all committed to figuring out different ways of treating yeah, exactly. it uh, right exactly. now. So. <laughs> um, but I mean, I guess w- with sort of that that bucket of options, I mean, how do these sort of, I'm going to say, emerging consumer credit innovations you know how do you how does it impact how you think about you know the business um and you know and the risk that you're managing you know even if you're not directly using them it it does have that second order impact to the customers you may be lending to yeah so um i guess big step back on this is a data business right and you are trying to use available data to assess for us, everything. I mean, we have dozens and dozens of models from um, the marketing models, what channels we're in, what ads are we showing, can we make you an offer, uh, how much can, how large can that offer be, what are we pricing that offer at, are you who you say you are, do you work where you say you work, do you earn what you said you earned, and then how should I be communicating with you and and the servicing stream. So it's like data is powering that entire life cycle from, you know, marketing to origination, underwriting and servicing. And the explosion in data available is an enormous opportunity to continue to get better. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen the numbers. It It is remarkable. It's remarkable when you come to the business as I did now many years ago, uh, 12, uh, from uh, to say, wow, what other business is there when somebody says, I'd like to buy your product and you say no? Um, that's the <laughs> lending business. And the interesting thing is the last customer you say no to, um, the majority of those people you said no to could still likely pay the loan off. The problem is that's not enough. So you can't price it, right, with mm-hmm. that kind of risk. If, you know, if... 45% of the people aren't going to make it. It's really hard to price for the 55% that will in a, in a, in a loan that they'll pay. So mm-hmm. the importance of continuing to try and find signals um, and also develop the right models for various types of customers, various types of use cases. And you know, from the outside in, you go, oh, well, you know, this is, this is very easy, right? Like, oh, can I give you a loan? And the answer is, well, Actually, there's so much more going on underneath the surface. Are you getting this loan to pay off credit card debt? Are you getting this loan for home mm-hmm. improvement? Are you getting this loan because you have an emergency medical need? That drives a very different process and, and thinking around what you can afford and whether we can approve you. So, you know, alternative data is powerful and also behavioral signals are powerful. We do use them. Things like, you know, cash flow based underwriting, as you mentioned, you know, Someone can look identical at the bureau and have six NSFs in the last year uh, or a growing balance or Mm -hmm. a stable balance. Those are three different risks, right? And so understanding Mm -hmm. that and factoring that in um, can result in a differentiated outcome. And I do think in unsecured lending, you have more opportunity for differentiated outcomes using the data than in asset-based lending, because in asset-based lending, it kind of all defaults back to the value of the asset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the thing you obviously need to be really thoughtful about and where there's continuing to be a lot of activity uh, at, at the regulatory level is how are you ensuring 
um, fair lending outcomes and whether or not you, you know, intended to have any kind of a disparate impact on different types of customers. Did you, did the data that you used unintentionally or not lead to that differential outcome? Um, and that's really, really important uh, to be testing for and, and understanding. So I'd say some of this alternative data is super, super powerful in places like fraud. Um, mm -hmm. It is, becomes more challenging to use in a compliant way when it comes to pricing and you know, offer rate. Um, so that, that I'd make that as a, as a broad statement. To your point on what are the implications of some of this invisible off balance sheet debt? Um, I, you know, I, I think they're, they're, they're very much there and I would combine that with they're there and um, the pandemic has, you know, been unprecedented in many ways, including the ways in which it has warped consumers' credit profiles. Mm -hmm. And if you look at this time period during which entire categories of spend were off the table, right? People couldn't travel and they weren't going to restaurants and they weren't going to retail stores. So huge categories of spend off the table, government stimulus ending up in people's bank accounts. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to pay your, your student loans. <laughs> um, that created a real distortion in people's credit profiles. And uh, I think the thing we have yet to fully see, but are, are, I believe you're starting to see the signs of, is anyone who is adapting their underwriting and their models and their pricing to that environment is has been in for a hell of a surprise. And mm -hmm. you know, that surprise is continuing to come. And so we we were quite public during the pandemic. We said we're we're underwriting and we're pricing based on pre-pandemic behavior. We are not factoring any of today's signals in because we don't think they represent, um, you know, a, a, a steady state. And this is where you know, as our uh, uh, data scientist says, this is where uh, real intelligence trumps artificial intelligence. Is that you know, it, uh, a machine can only work based on the data you give it. And somebody mm -hmm. exercising the judgment to say, do I want to give it this data, right? Does this data represent, does the, the most recent history represent our upcoming future? And if not, maybe I need to, you know, carve that out. Definitely. I mean, I guess uh, we'll we'll continue to find out through the rest of this year how uh, folks who chose to open up their underwriting to try to capitalize and, and originate more volume during those pandemic times, uh, how their books, delinquencies, and charge-offs fare. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can listeners follow you on social media to stay up with the latest on what's happening at Lending Club? Yeah, uh, all, all the usual places, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, LendingClub.com. Awesome. Thank you. Until next time. All right. Thank you. Thank you.